world of colors, blue is a color which is abundantly seen but rarely captured. A color which dominates our every waking moment by the sky and covers the 70% area of our planet through oceans. Rightly, our planet itself is called the blue planet. The story of colors is a fascinating one. Wherever our eyes go, they appear seamlessly on everything. From the speck of dust on the ground to our clothes and things, and to the sky, everything is colored. As readily available they are naturally, that much difficult it is to obtain them synthetically for our use. From the Stone Age, our ancestors learned that they could grind clay to make orchard and earthy red. Later, the Egyptians mined in the Sinai Peninsula to obtain copper carbonate hydroxide minerals to produce a rare green hue. Throughout the time of man, Scientists and researchers have found new colors deliberately or accidentally. Mar Subramanian, a chemist at Oregon State University, recently found a new blue pigment in 2009 after 200 years from the discovery of the last one, unintentionally. Said that, it's strange to think of colors as something that can be discovered. Ask most scientists and they'll tell you that's not really how it works anyway. You can't discover a color. You can only discover a material that uses a particular reflection of a particular wavelength. Simply meaning that you must find a material which absorbs all other colors except one which it needs to reflect. The one color you intend to produce. It's not simply mixing one color with another to form a third color. Like in the case of mixing blue with yellow to form green. That's a far simpler way of obtaining the third color from the already existing thing. Discovering a new pigment in entirety is a beast of its own realm. Even though colors are available abundantly, colors like rare precious minerals or stones are rare. As we'll see in the episode later, even as expensive as gold itself. The elusive color blue is the rarest of them all. Black, white, red, yellow, and green all came to us in the early days of our civilization. Blue, however, evaded the grasp of man up until 6,000 years ago and in a way until the recent modern history of the industrial age. Because see, you cannot just grab some water from the ocean and mix it with something and create blue or you cannot just get hold of some sky mix it with water or egg yolks like other colors to create blue. The feathers of a peacock do not have a single pigment of blue in them, and blue eyes or flowers are not readily available either. Most importantly, those cannot act as a source of the color itself. Blue is said to be so rare that even a word for it didn't exist until the recent human history, up until the Egyptians. Lazarus Gegar a linguist noted that the modern European words for blue are derived from black and green, which existed as words for colors in the ancient time. Say bleu for blue in French, which clearly feels like has come from black. Bleu, 
black. Two pieces of research were taken under to prove that point. One of them suggests that a language shapes a reality. And so up until a word for blue came around, we only thought of blue as a lighter shade of black or a different hue of green. Until you give a name to a thing distinctly, it doesn't make its presence evident. Sounds like the law of attraction and the theory of non-duality and duality, right? Blue is a color that symbolizes trust, loyalty, wisdom, confidence, intelligence, faith, truth, royalty, wealth, and heaven. It also, as history sees it, is a remarkable color that leads to trade and trade wars, slavery, marketing gimmicks, scientific discoveries, and world-renowned art movements like Feeling Blue by the great painter Pablo Picasso. Also, how a color simply created the world's first blueprints, rightly named after it. All of this and the origin story of blue as we know it ahead in the episode. I am Abhishek, your host, and this is Invoke. Before we begin the story of blue, let's understand how colors or pigments are discovered or rather found accidentally. Apart from what I gathered from my research, I may not be aware of any deliberate color pigment discovery. Yes, there are a lot of companies now that try to make new colors every now and then, but nothing noteworthy to be included here. But to put things into context, Nowadays, a lot of companies are trying to come up with signature colors so as to market their brand better and better branded in general. A simple example would be why an iPhone XS Space Gray is different than that of a OnePlus's Gunmetal Gray. In the early 1970s, a group of scientists at Michigan State University were trying to make a theoretical substance. Donald Farnham, who led the research, said, he had no interest whatsoever in making anything that had any practical use. When Farnham and his fellow researchers conducted the research, they came across a rare bright red pigment, which resembled nothing they had expected. When he published a paper in a chemistry journal about his findings, it caught the attention of a pharmaceutical company that decided to synthesize the compound, thinking that one day it might be a useful dye. Useful would be a small word to describe what the pigment PR254 achieved. It served as a chemical basis for a dozen more pigments and was also used in semiconductors and TV pigments. Today, PR254 is commonly known as the Ferrari Red. Farnham, apart from the paper itself, got no patent to his name or made any monetary gains from it. When asked about this, he jokingly said, we didn't make things to make money of them for some stupid reason. He said, laughing, we just did it for fun. Some people have an extra spirit of discovery born in them. Continuing, second, a color such as the titanium white, which you may not have heard of, but is used extensively all around you. House paint, food color, and everyday appliances. Even Apple's newest sleekest status symbol, the Apple credit card, which is made up of titanium, is laser-edged, and apple design is also colored in titanium white. Dr. Nicholas Estog, a scientist and a PhD in scientific analysis and documentary research of historical pigments, said that, I believe it is added to skim milk, which quite frankly is terrifying to think of. 
a famous art forger, Wolfgang Beltracci, dubbed the forger of the century, got caught by the intervention of Estov by identifying one key element in his forged paintings. In his own words, he said, the painting had been examined before me by a German institute, but they didn't come to a conclusion over it. So they came to me and I identified a particular flaw in it, but allowed a civil case to precipitate the criminal case and it snowballed from there. The flaw in question was the use of a pigment called titanium white. Later in an interview he added, this reflects the processes and technologies of the time. Still, its impact on the art world is undeniable. For us, dealing with authenticity of paintings, it is a discovery that is key to identifying fakes of early 20th century paintings, he explained. Titanium white stood as a marker of time between the early and late works of certain artists. An artist like Picasso wouldn't have used it earlier in his career, but by the 1940s or 50s would have. So, a 1920s or 1930s Picasso with titanium white in it is automatically suspect. The forger Wolfgang Beltracci committed 14 major forgeries that amount to about $28.6 million, which is said to be just a minuscule portion of his hundreds of frauds earlier. He is now released from prison and for the first time is exhibiting art with his own original signature. So as we will hear in this podcast further, that apart from the Egyptian blue, ultramarine and French ultramarine, all other discoveries of blue were accidental and coincidental. My point in telling everything about the current companies and titanium white and Ferrari red is that apart from the huge industrialized versions of colors now available, no major new pigments were found with intention. Most were accidents. Two incidences of accidental discoveries can be seen in the following two examples. In the 18th century, a German chemist named Johann Jakob Diesbach was working in his laboratory trying to make a red pigment out of the cohenial insect whose extract dyes everything from food to lipstick. The recipe Diesbach used contained potash, iron sulfate and alum, apart from the extract from the insect themselves. He intended to create a pale red. However, problem occurred which later turned out to be a boon. Because the potash he used was contaminated by animal blood and by a surprising chemical reaction, instead of creating more red with two reds combined, the experiment resulted in a vibrant deep ocean-like blue. The Diesbach blue, or popularly known as the Prussian blue, and even Berliner blue, hence became one of the first synthetic colors ever made. The invention of Prussian blue led to a well-acclaimed art movement by a famous painter and architects all around the world found their work to be a little easier. As we go chronologically in the history of blue, I'll tell you what exactly it's about. Second, the ancient Phoenicians created a color called the Tyrian purple, discovered in the trading city of Tyre, which is now in modern-day Lebanon. They observed that the murex snail contained a yellow liquid within them which upon extraction turned purple when it came in contact with air. The Tyrian purple basically ranged from a pale blue to dark purple to red. As some expensive variants of blue, like the ultramarine, this too was a very expensive color. 
comparable to the value of gold. It denoted the same characteristics as blue and symbolized the same qualities like royalty and wealth because of its rareness. It used to take 6 pounds of liquid from 10,000 snails to dye 1 pound of wool to make a single robe. Archaeological excavations prove that because tens of thousands of snail shells were found at the Lebanon port. Now, pause here for a second and try to understand the environmental and monetary impact of a simple thing such as a color which we now take for granted. Later, after the development of synthetic pigments, many such practices which were ecologically harmful came to a halt. An episode on the Radio Lab podcast speaks about colors in a lot more detail. If you'd like to, you can go on and listen to it. I'll be linking it in the show notes. This way, sometimes the colors led to scientific discoveries or the scientific advancement of a time led to a more sustainable way of producing and obtaining a color. Today's non-toxic or eco-friendly colors stand testimony to a time when none of that was possible. And now, the story of blue begins. First, let's start with the central question. How did the name blue came to be for a color? The ancient Egyptian society was the first to adopt a name for the color blue as they were the first ones to produce blue dyes. The Egyptian blue is said to be the first synthetic pigment ever developed, made up of calcium, copper and silica. Therefore, it is said that a word for blue didn't exist until the Egyptians. An Israeli linguist, Guy Dushan, published a book called Through the Language Glass, Why the World Looks Different in Other Languages, in which he noted from an observation of an English scholar and prime minister William Gladstone that the choice of words in the Homer's epics Eliad and Odyssey describes the agency as wine red, which to Gladstone was a bemusing discovery. Later, Guy went on to describe how, even in the Bible, there are all sorts of words for the sky and sea, but no blue. Another linguist, Lazarus Gegar, also noted almost a hundred years ago that the ancient Indian epics like the Mahabharata which dates back to more than four millennia, even didn't describe the oceans as blue. Same in case of the Chinese writings. I personally have an objection on this observation though. Personally, right while I'm recording this, I can think of at least three mentions of the color blue in the ancient Indian Hindu mythology. First, the Nilkant, which is a name given to Lord Shiva, meaning the blue-throated one which was a result of the poison he drank during the Samudra Mantan, churning of the sea, which in itself is an event that took place ages ago Mahabharata and the creation of a known world. Second is Nilanjana, meaning the one with the blue eyes, a name related to the moon sign Scorpio. And third, the depiction of most Hindu gods like Vishnu and Krishna as Nilavarna, meaning blue caste or blue skin. So, it is bemusing to me that how come Lazarus didn't find the mention of blue in Mahabharata of which Krishna is a dominant figure. Anyway, continuing with their research, it proclaimed that the first colors to appear were red, black, white, then came yellow and green. The last one to appear was blue, 
in all of the ancient scriptures. One logical explanation for it is that the first five colors were essential to a survival. Blue wasn't. Red denoted danger or blood. And green depicted food. Black and white simply adjusted our biological clocks to the cycles of the sun and moon. Now it doesn't mean that until a word for blue was found, blue didn't exist in the universe. It did, but the perception of it was different in everyone's psyche. A logical explanation that was derived from two experiments hundreds of years apart. Both the experiments studied isolated tribes so that no new vocabulary was introduced to them. One experiment was conducted in 1890, in which the elders described the sky as black, and the children described it as muddy. The anthropologists concluded that these people are colorblind, but simply perceive color differently. For them, every color is just a different hue of black, white, or red. The subjects in this experiment, however, had a wider definition of black. For them, blue is simply a hue of the color black. Because isn't it that the sky turns black to blue in the cycle of day and night? Apart from simple nomenclature, it also figured that the islanders perceive the sky a little darker than we do. It proclaimed that we only get used to the different hues of color when language trains our brain to distinguish it as entirely different entities. In an article on lifescience.com, you can read about how your color red could really be my color blue and how each one of us might truly see colors differently. I'll link to that article in the show notes below. And so, blue could simply be a figment of our imagination, like the borders of the nations all around the world and the distinction of races by anything other than human. Another experiment from 2006, which is a little controversial, but tried something similar with the Himba tribe in Namibia. The tribe seemed to have a lot of words for the use of green, but none for blue. They too considered blue as a hue of green. The experiment confirmed that a language indeed affects how we perceive the world. Doesn't this shake up your entire perspective about how positive self-talk or motivational speeches could really alter your living reality? Now, let's come back to the so-called first inventors of the word blue, the Egyptians, and continue with our story of the color, starting with the Egyptian blue. The production method of Egyptian blue seemed to be passed on as it is for 2000 years. Artworks such as the Meruka of the Old Kingdom, dating from 2600 to 2100 BC, and an old coffin which dates back to the Greco-Roman period of 330 BC and 480 resemble the use of the same blue in painting them. For the Egyptians, the color blue symbolized life, fertility, and rebirth. Because according to them, it was the color of the heavens, and so of the universe as well. It was also the color of the water of the river Nile, which was the all-life-giving mother of Egypt. It wasn't the case that the Egyptians did not have access to any naturally occurring blue. The only problem was that it had to be imported from Afghanistan, because it was a semi-precious stone found in its mountains. It was a luxury item. The semi-precious stone, lapis lazuli, could be ground up into a powder and used to make the color blue. 
considering the cost of its procurement and process, the Egyptians always wanted to develop a synthetic pigment which could be used as a substitute for the blue lapis lazuli. Eventually, Egyptian blue left its borders of Egypt and spread across the Mediterranean. Various Greek and Roman objects from the time period has this blue on them. The statues of Parthenon in Athens and the wall paintings of Pompeii. Two millennia later, researchers found to experiment that the Egyptian blue has an unusual quality of emitting infrared light when the red light is shown on it. Even though not visible to the naked eye, the emissions are said to be extraordinarily powerful. A conservation scientist named Giovanni Veri was viewing a 2500-year-old Greek marble basin under fluorescent lights in 2006. Even though the color pigments on the basin were washed away and invisible to a naked eye, under the fluorescent lights, the blue pigments began to glow. A signal, according to him, that Egyptian blue emits infrared radiation. Because of this property, scientists outside the conservation field have started taking interest in Egyptian blue, trying to use it for biomedical analysis and laser development. In future, Egyptian blue could be used for communication. Its beams are said to be similar to those used in remote controls and telecommunication devices. It's also found that its near-infrared radiation is able to penetrate through skin tissue better than other wavelengths and therefore it holds the possibility of being used for biomedical imaging. As an ink solution, it could also be used to create new types of security inks in the future. Security inks are basically used to protect printed materials in different forms. Mostly hidden, they can only be seen under ultraviolet rays, to which, as we have found, Egyptian blue is a perfect candidate. Remarkably, how something so ancient, which originated 6000 years ago, holds so much scientific value in modern times. Even the first creators of it never would have thought in their wildest imagination that their creation will echo on in time for so long and so resiliently. Please keep in mind that throughout this episode, we'll be moving chronologically and every blue after the other, we are coming closer to home in time. Next in line is the Lapis Lazuli, or more commonly known as the Ultramarine. The story of the star, among all the other blue pigments, the Ultramarine blue began 6000 years ago. Also known as True Blue, the pigment was made from Lapis Lazuli, a semi-precious stone available in the mountains of Afghanistan. Ultramarine, as a pigment, first appeared in the 6th century and was used in the Buddhist paintings of Bamiya, Afghanistan. The pigment got its name, or rather was renamed Ultramarine, meaning Beyond the Sea, in Latin when it was imported in Europe by Italian traders from the port of Venice in the 14th and 15th century. It was one of the most sought-after colors of the Renaissance because of its deep royal blue finish. A lot of master artists living in medieval Europe wanted to use it. As I kept mentioning throughout this episode, these colors were expensive. In order to use them, you had to be wealthy. Prices comparable to gold. Ultramarine remained a color designated to the royalty. 
and the most important of the institutions like the church. This sudden discovery of the color of the heavens, the sky, meant that it was also used to portray holiness. The robes of the Virgin Mary in Gerard David's painting and the Virgin and the Child with female saints are two of the examples. A Baroque master painter, Johannes Vermeer, loved the color so much that he plunged his family into debt to paint a girl with a pearl earring, his famous painting. A movie of the same name starring Scarlett Johansson was released in 2003. The movie depicts how a young peasant maid working in the house of Johannes Vermeer became his talented assistant and a model for one of his most acclaimed paintings, a girl with a pearl earring. Even Michelangelo, the great Italian master, returned the payment for his painting, the endowment to the church of St. Augustino in Rome, and never completed it because he couldn't afford to buy more ultramarine blue. Personally, for me and to many other creatives, this episode provides great comfort. Even the likes of the great Michelangelo couldn't complete his work because of a lack of gear or equipment. Color in his case, cameras, lenses and whatnot in my own case. I wonder if he intended to paint the body of Jesus blue while they laid him in his tomb. Because remember, blue signified holy. You might also recognize Michelangelo from his famous sculpture of David. A BBC documentary named History of Art in Three Colors has a part on blue. I'm linking it as well so that you can watch it if you wish to. I personally enjoyed it much because of its story and all the Renaissance references. In 1824, an offer of 6,000 francs was made to anyone who could invent a synthetic version of the expensive ultramarine. A French and German chemist both found one within weeks of each other, which led to an unclear result of the contest's winner. The French Committee of Société des Encouragements obviously bestowed the award on the Frenchman and named the new pigment as French ultramarine. The German chemist here is none other than Johann Jakob Biesbach, who invented the even more widely known and used blue, the Prussian blue, as we got to know earlier in the episode. Pablo Picasso used the Prussian blue exclusively during his blue period, from which the expression feeling blue took birth, and the Japanese woodblock artist Atsushiki Hokusai also used it to create his iconic The Great Wave of Kanagawa and his 36 views of Mount Fuji series. I bet that you have seen countless pictures of the Great Wave of Kanagawa with thousands of quotes laden over it, but probably didn't know that it was it. After you finish listening to the episode, you can go and see it on the episode's page and confirm that I have won the bet. Another amazing discovery was given impetus by the same color in 1842. An English astronomer, Sir John Herschel, discovered that the Prussian blue had a special sensitivity to light and was of the perfect hue to create copies of drawings. And that's how the name and application of it came to be known as the blueprints. In my opinion, Biesbach didn't get the award for the 6,000 francs, but gained something even more valuable, a color to his name with its distinct identity and expansion. The contest was held in 1824. However, the invention of French ultramarine took until 1826. Cobalt blue Meanwhile, another variant of blue that was available at the time was cobalt blue. 
probably originally dates back to the 6th century BC where the people of Babylonia used it for making blue glazed stonewares up until the 8th and 9th century. A purer alumina based version was later found by a French chemist named Louis Yakis in 1802. However, the true commercial use of cobalt began in 1807. Famous painters like Vincent van Gogh, who used daily Russian money for paints, started using cobalt as an alternative to the expensive ultramarine to paint many of his artworks of the total 2100 he ever created. One of his most iconic paintings, The Starry Night, which you might have also seen a thousand times on social media, it quotes again, makes me understand now that the dreamy night sky in it is painted by all the blue mentioned here. That is, Russian, ultramarine, ceruline, and especially cobalt. By the way, all of the artwork and paintings I'm mentioning right now in this episode will be available on Solo, where the transcript of this episode will be hosted. Right below the episode, I post the link to the article so that you can actually see all that I'm describing. After all, colors are a visual phenomenon. Ceruline, a so-called derivative of cobalt, ceruline was made up of two more ingredients. The sky color paint was perfected by Andreas Hoffner in Germany in 1805. Until 1860, the color, however, was not available as an artistic pigment. In 1887, an artist by the name Bareth Morisot created a painting called A Summer's Day in which he used the ceruline blue along with cobalt and ultramarine to paint the code of the woman in that painting. According to me, what makes this painting remarkable is that it depicts all the three types of blue mentioned here so far in the same painting and distinct enough to be recognizable separately. Recently, Pantone, a color company, declared ceruline as the color of the millennium and the hue of the future in 1999. Guys, I strongly recommend that you go check out the blog post after you are done listening because I'm sure you would love to see all these colors in action. Indigo Blue Continuing forward in our quest up till the modern blue, we now come across a not-so-rare and widely available pigment of blue which resulted in a trade war between Europe and America. The blue dye in question here is called indigo. Newton, who introduced the color spectrum, believed that the rainbow should have seven distinct colors like the seven days of the week, like the seven known planets at the time, and also the seven musical notes. At the time, facts suggested that the rainbow had five colors. However, Newton, along with orange, pushed indigo in the mix, to much shock of the scientists at the time. Even though blue was expensive to use in paintings, the arrival of the new blue dye, indigo, obtained from a crop called as the indigo ferra, provided a cheaper alternative to dyeing textiles in place of the rare blue from lapis lazuli. Indigo was extensively cultivated all throughout the world, especially in India. Indigo was introduced to Europe from India in the 16th century. Throughout the Middle Ages, however, indigo remained a rare commodity in Europe. The Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama at the time was tasked with finding a direct route to India through the sea, which as we all know that he succeeded in. 
Once the direct trade to India was established, it also opened up access to the Spice Islands, China and Japan. Importers of indigo now could avoid heavy duties imposed by the Greek, Persian and Levantine middlemen. They also were relieved from the strenuous and dangerous land route which they used earlier. Automatically, afterward, the indigo trade took off in Europe and most of it was imported from the ports in Portugal, Netherlands and England. In North America, indigo was introduced by Eliza Lucas Pinkman, a remarkable woman of her time who looked over three of her cultivation businesses. One can see her as an entrepreneur ahead of her time. Single-handedly, Eliza Lucas made indigo the number one cash crop of the Revolutionary War by the means of its cultivation, and later processing it as a dye. One-third of the total colonial exports from South Carolina were credited to indigo exports. The only drawback of this amazing feat was that it fueled African slavery in the indigo plantation. Movies like the Django Unchained paint the picture of the time very vividly. Indigo was important in ways that in the Edo period in Japan, commoners were banned from wearing silk, which led to the increased cultivation of cotton in the region. The growing textile industry subsequently needed a dye that could color cotton, and coincidentally, indigo was one of the few substances that could dye. The navy blue that we now know also came forth from indigo in the 18th century. It was adopted as the official color of the British Royal Navy. In 1880, natural indigo was replaced by a synthetic pigment. The pigment is still used to dye our genes. Scientists now have, however, discovered a bacteria which produces the same chemical reaction as the one in indigo plants. A method called the bio-indigo now will play a huge part in producing environment-friendly denim in the future. One last view that came into existence before the one discovered in 2009 which we mentioned earlier in the episode, was Cullen Blue. It was found by a French artist who painted and created some 200 monochrome canvases, sculptures, and even asked human models to cover themselves in it so that he can print their bodies on the canvas. The latest view, the Yemen Blue, or the Beautiful Blue, as named by the Crayon Company Crayola, which introduced Yemen Blue as a new shade in their collection, was accidentally discovered by Master Brahmanman and his fellow students after 200 years of the last blue pigment, which was the Prussian blue, in the same fashion as it, at the Oregon State University laboratory during a failed experiment. I knew immediately this was a big discovery, so I filed for the patent, said Subramanian in an interview. Subramanian explained that blue is an uncommon pigment to stumble upon. clearly evident by the Prussian blue earlier. It is said to be the first inorganic pigment to be made since cobalt in the 19th century. And unlike any other blue, lemon blue is very stable. It reflects heat and does not fade. The absence of toxicity, durability, and heat-reflecting properties, lemon blue has opened the door to environment-friendly and safe colors for humans. We all have heard or seen in various advertisements that the paint companies promote their paint as less toxic or not toxic at all and we wonder what it really means. But now, through this journey of view, we discover that colors are perfectly capable of emitting radiation and some elements in them are particularly harmful to the environment and us.
As we now know that how blue pigments carry a rich heritage of scientific inventions, global trade, artistic movements, we come to a realization that the simplest of things around us carry magnificent stories and how the effects of each one in history have led to the comfort and choice that we now reap. We also learn that some luxuries come at the cost of other lives, like the murex nails of Tyre who were squished by thousands to paint a single row and to make indigo dyes slavery was encouraged and how some colors are toxic in nature and harm the environment these examples open our eyes to many such possibilities of a consumerism asking us to question how and from where we are obtaining what we need and is there a better alternative source like biocolors to source the object of our desires sources that sustain the beautiful world we live in and the lives on it Again, I'm Abhishek, and you were listening to Invoke, a podcast where the spirit awakens.